Hi, I'm Matt Little, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 74 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week, I'm super pumped to speak to Matt Little, the long-term S&C coach of Andy Murray. We covered a lot of areas, including the streams of working in the game, an insight into the training of the former world number one, technology on and off the practice court, some great stories through his journey, and a lot more. It was a Zoom recording, so apologies if the sound quality isn't up to our usual level but we will have some great video snippets on our Instagram over the next few days. As usual, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger. I heard they're struggling with demand, but there's still some time to secure your Slinger for Christmas, I hope. Okay, let's go. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Really pumped to do this. Ah, so am I. It's been a while. I know I've been chasing you down. I've been annoying you. But my goal is to keep annoying you until you come on. Like when people... When people say maybe, it means maybe. I do like getting a hard no. When somebody says a hard no, I appreciate it. You said, yeah, we'll do it. So thank you. I know how busy you are. And after you tell me you're doing four hours commute in a day, that is crazy. How, how do you deal with the commuting, first of all? Do you listen to podcasts when you're driving? I do. I use it to either listen to stuff and try and learn a little bit or just get all of my phone calls out of the way before I get home. And then when I get home, I can then just switch off. But it's... Uh, yeah, it has its moments. You know, it, normally when we're traveling so much, you don't, I don't mind it because uh, it's a bit of a novelty. But um, but yeah, when we're not traveling as much like this year, it's been, uh, it's been a bit of a grind. Wow. And it's probably a few years you do. Well, like when when we go back to Resurfs and we've all, well, a lot of people have seen the, the great documentary. You were doing it there as well. So you've probably been doing it a good while. Yeah, it's about three or four years now where we've not done a full kind of traveling schedule, um, which is such a different life to the one we've led the sort of 10 years previously to that, you know, and uh, I think my wife realized who she actually married now because I'm, I'm around so much, you know, so uh, yeah, I think that's bad luck on her to be perfectly honest. Well, she might, no, she probably really appreciates it, having you home, like rather than disappearing for like blocks at a time. But before we jump into your where it all started for you, what podcast do you listen to when you're in the car? Um, yours, of course. There's a few, actually. Um, there's a School of Greatness, uh, Lewis Howes, the School of Greatness, uh, Pacey Performance Podcast, um, for more if I want some more S&C kind of stuff. Um, a little bit, of, little bit of Joe Rogan, if there's a few people on there that kind of take my interest or it gets a bit of um, coverage. So, yeah, those are probably the main the main three and then audiobooks you know listening to a bunch of audiobooks as well which is a great way to pass the time i did listen to you on i saw the actually the youtube video with christian boss i thought that was great and he has some great guests now i don't follow him on as a podcast but i just see some of his youtube videos and he has some really world-class guests on there and for anybody who's listening they should check him out because uh, it's really good but let's get back so where did was it tennis? Did you play tennis at all as a young kid? I did. So myself and my friends came into the sport quite late, but we fell immediately in love with the sport. We probably started playing about 13, probably 12, 13. Uh, a tennis centre opened near us called Sutton Junior Tennis Centre, which 
was the first tennis centre in the country to prioritise junior bookings over kind of your adults that play in the evening and stuff. So um, we basically just used that as our kind of youth club, essentially, for about three or four years. We just spent every moment we could at that place, socialising and obviously hitting balls. Um, And we just just loved it. You know, I mean, we weren't the best players there because, you know, we came into it so late. And so we'd be turning up to all the tournaments and, well, I'd be losing first round, but I'd still be there at the weekend watching other friends who are better and, and still there because I just love being around it. So um, we did quite a lot of fitness training back then as well. We used to do the beat test every Sunday as part of the kind of the group thing. And so I, and I really loved that. I played a lot of football as a kid. I was very sporty. So I really enjoyed the physical side of it. So, um, so for me, it was actually quite clear from a very young age exactly what I wanted to do. I knew exactly the job I wanted to do because I love tennis. Knew I wasn't any good to make any money, even out of coaching, really. Um, but loved the physical side. So I just set about getting the qualifications and the experience required to be an S&C coach in tennis. That's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I've ever done. Well, that's amazing. That clear vision. It's it's rare to see. Like I know kids have dreams. You say, well, Andy wants to be a tennis player. That is, they've worked that. But you rarely hear them more professional roles like as in being an accountant or a solicitor or doctor they've dreams but you never know how hard you know it's hard so that's great to hear so when did you what was the breakthrough well what how did it start so you're in you finished school yeah so I did when did all my studies did my degrees all the rest of it and whilst whilst I was doing that I was kind of playing and working at the tennis centre in various guises. I was working behind the bar, dishing out the chocolate bars and then, you know, cleaning the courts. And then they built a gym at the tennis centre. So then I started doing a bit of voluntary stuff, just watching in the gym whilst I then got my gym qualifications so that I can actually start taking people for programmes. Then I started working in the gym there, uh, you know, doing programmes for old ladies and, you know, middle-aged men and people who just had heart attacks and all these kind of, great interesting scenarios you get thrown into uh whilst cleaning the machines in between inductions and all those you know great experiences um so yeah i essentially did that for a while and then thought okay uh it's time to kind of kick things on a little bit my career had hit a bit of a plateau to be honest i'd started to work with some of the better players at the center as well because they started the scholarship scheme there and the lta also based themselves at Sutton as well. But, um, yeah, I hit, started to hit a bit of a ceiling. Um, so it's funny, actually. I watched the, the movie American Beauty, you know, oh, yeah. the one with Kevin Spacey. And I kind of, for some reason, it's just like a bit of a light bulb moment. I was like, look, you've only got one shot of this life. You know, you need to just, yeah. if you need to do something, you need to do it now. And literally the next day, I'm not joking, the next day, I went in and handed my resignation in and um, literally got on a plane probably about three weeks later to Australia with no money apart from a credit card. I think I had 200 pounds and a credit card. Um, And I used those three weeks, that notice period to write to everybody out there. And it's funny you talk about persistence, actually. You know, um, I basically was writing to everybody and kind of not getting many replies. So a week later, bang, write write to them again. You know, and then I think people realized, okay, I better at least reply to this bloke because otherwise I'm going to be getting emails every single week. And lo and behold, I then spent a year touring Australia. But I wanted to, when I came home, I knew I wanted to be in a better place than when I left. 
So I went to every state tennis center. I went to every institute of sport all around the country and just volunteered and just observed and watched and networked um, and got a few breaks. And actually one of the people I met when I was out there was a guy called Mark Taylor, who as luck would have it, when I returned to the UK after my year in Australia, he was then working at one of the performance academies in Loughborough where the LTA had set up there. And then it kind of went from there. I got a job with him uh, and the team up there and worked there for five years with the best players, best 12 to 16s in the country. Uh, then we had an LTA restructure um, and they opened the National Tennis Centre. So I applied for one of the roles there under Dr. Anne Quinn and was lucky enough to get one of the jobs at the National Tennis Centre where, um, where I met a relatively young Andy Murray um, and we hit it off pretty quickly and managed to find myself working for him. How old was Andy when you met him? Oh, that was, uh, he would have been 19, 20. Okay, so he, he was well established by that. Like he was, he was a big, was he was top 50 anyway, was he? You may tell me more. Yeah. He was well on his way. He was, yeah, he was doing incredibly well. He just finished with Brad Gilbert um, and I think recognised that he wanted to have a team of people around him rather than just one person. And he recognised that he needed to improve on his physical kind of capabilities and I think Brad had also been very strong in his messaging on that which was which was great we were the beneficiaries of that so I've got Brad to thank for that but yeah. you know Andy's a smart dude anyway he worked it out um so yeah he assembled the team it was myself Jez Green Miles McLaggen uh Louis Kaye helped us out a little bit at the start and Andy Island was the physio so that was kind of the uh the, the original kind of team Murray I suppose you could um you could say and uh yeah, that was some interesting times. What was your exact role? What was your title? I guess I didn't have a formal one, but Jez would have been um, would have been the, the kind of the main strength and condition coach for Andy. He would have been managing Andy's program, uh, and I would have been more of an implementer of that program okay. um, for the first kind of five years. Of course, you know, Jez and I had lots of discussions, and my my kind of the role that I assumed then was also to try and add value in any ways I could, like introducing little bits of technology or ideas, you know, trying to think outside the box and just trying to add to what was already, you know, a fantastic training program that Andy had. And um, Jez and I hit it off very well. We all, we all hit it off very well as a team. It was such a close bond we all had, and um, which is quite a, a difficult thing to get in tennis, actually, is to have everyone just working so well together and no egos kind of clashing just everyone pulling in the same direction it was lovely you know it's it's about the player really it's not about you you got to drop everything at the door maybe you guys were all brits as well am i right we everybody brits that makes it a bit easier all quite local rather than different nationalities i think that can cause problems later on with language with banter as well i'm sure you guys it looks like have a lot of good banter uh, on and off, well, maybe not on the court, but uh, but off the court, and there's always a bit of fun. So I think that helps keep a relationship going. Do you remember what was the first bit of technology you start using that you introduced that was probably other people weren't using? Yeah, I mean, we've always been trying to find out information about what's happening on the court. Uh, so even in the quite early days, we were using Catapult, um, which I'm now quite a proponent of, but we were using the Catapult even before it had live capabilities you know uh, but i even remember on my very first training block with andy i bought a urine osmolarity 
uh, machine checker out there to test his hydration during practice and all those things. So I remember one of the first ever gym sessions I did with him, I was collecting his pee and analysing his pee. So, yeah, I was always trying to add little bits and bobs in there. But, we, yeah, we, we were trying to innovate quite early on, even trying to get um, – we had a pretty early meeting with, um, I think it was McLaren, trying to get the Hawkeye data converted into kind of player tracking rather okay. than just ball tracking. We were trying to do that 10 years ago, Um, you know, and trying to find out the physical aspects of the performance on the court to be more accurate in our programming. Um, Because that, for me, has always been a bit of a holy grail uh, in trying to inform the program, you know. So you really like you were the sky of the tennis world, the the sky cycling team, which is, you know, you're looking for all these advantages. And do you, would you start tracking Andy's sleep? And was that's what I'm really interested in. And, most people who are into the science thing track sleep and that. Are, do you guys do that? Yeah, I mean, we've used internal monitoring sporadically as well, for sure. I mean, heart rate monitoring, obviously, you know, pretty consistently. Uh, lactate testing, all of those things fairly consistently. Um, I know that Andy was recently, he started using his, the Whoop band. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, golfers have, have really taken that on board as well. And that's taught him a lot of interesting things about his recovery in terms of sleep. And if he's not gets managed to get naps during the day as well, you know, the impact that has on his recovery. So, um, so yeah, that's always been something that for us, I mean, you know, everybody knows it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's ever clearer, you know, that, that sleep is by far and away the best recovery modality for sure, you know, bar none. And did anything change when the kids came along? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny actually because... Andy's wife's pretty patient with that stuff, you know, I think. And, uh, you know, obviously being an elite athlete, you do have to make sure you get your sleep to perform well. But, you know, I've never really spoken to him about it, but I imagine the interesting conversations he has with his wife saying, look, you know, I've got to get my sleep in compared to the conversations I have with my wife when I say, look, you know, I need to get a good night's sleep. And it's like, listen, mate, you're, uh, you're on the night shift tonight. You know, it's a very different... You can't win, yeah. I know. It's, it's tough. It's so... We, we, we're our baby now is 14 months and now my wife is great. She gets up most and she's still amazing. Like she still does, but it's number two's on the way. So it's slowly, the transition period has hap- started already. And it's so tough, like, you know, from a focus during the day, from a, my eating goes off because you're tired. It's the, the sleep ju- and you may not train and the training's not as good. Sleep really dictates a lot of things. And as you get older, it actually gets harder because your energy is a lot less in general no for sure and i guess everyone just can just relate that they know when they're feeling a bit tired and a bit ratty you know you do, you make bad decisions you know your communication is poor um your rationale goes out the window like you say everything just feeds it just uh, it just cycles it circles from there and it's um incredible really i think the same with hunger actually you know uh, a lot of us kind of would notice that as well you know when you're hungry your kind of your rationality yeah. and your decision making is just not quite as good and i don't know it's all these things that are just hidden performance factors that uh that we've got to appreciate if we don't really we ignore them at our peril I well I, I think tiredness for me tiredness is a lot worse than hunger <laughs> Uh, yeah, you'll find to get food somewhere. You get something into you, but definitely the tiredness makes you make terrible food decisions. And every kilo I can stop putting on makes a difference. So 
the, the, you can see how sleep's related to all these things and how it's tougher for, I'm sure it's like players who travel, I'm, not, I'm sure there's not that many players who travel with kids, but it can be quite tough. You're in a hotel room with kids and you're not, you, you got to just say, I'm working here and it's a job at the end of the day. But from a training perspective, apart from the technology, how much has training changed from when you first start working with Andy to now? Like what's really changed? Yeah, good question. I think when we first started, I mean, look, most players were into their strength and conditioning, most players. Um, now I would say it's just a given that every player is and that, you know, like this time of year now, we're in November, every single player in the world, even not pro players, but, you know, aspiring pro players, they'll all be doing training blocks now. You know, and I love it. I love checking social media this time of year and everyone's oh, posting videos of their yeah. PBs, lifting and, you know, training and all that stuff. So that aspect of it, I think there's just more people doing more of it, I think. I don't think the exercises have changed, in my opinion, they haven't changed a great deal because I don't think they should change a great deal, actually. You know, people, especially tennis players, need to get the basics done really well, which I, I think has always applied and always will. Um, I think um, I do think there's more teams probably around and larger teams. Okay, yeah. I think around. I think the psychological and the cognitive aspect is something that will we will see develop more and more in the future. Actually, just explain that a little bit. I just think in terms of people's concentration levels and people's ability to focus when fatigued. I think that's something that can be. Uh, train probably oh, yeah. better and more formally. How would you go about training? That seems something so hard to train looking at from the outside here. How would you go about? I, I, don't, I have no, uh, I certainly have no training in that area, um, but I know amongst the kind of the, the community and the fraternity, that's things that are being researched and discussed a lot more and even in supplementation of of, of seeing okay. whether there's products that can actually get you more focused even if your body's fatigued i think that's an area that's that's definitely not been as researched as much as other areas of sports science and and we all know that link between the, the physical and the mental is yeah. so key both in terms of confidence when you're feeling physically good but also Conversely, if you're feeling physically bad, again, the impacts of tiredness on performance Decision in a different making. way, physical exhaustion, um, and, and people's ability to push through that and, and perform well. So that would be an area I would think in the future might be, um, might be changing. But actually, the, the, the interim period for me is this learning about the physical performance, what's actually happening to the player on the court. Because watching... And assuming what we think is happening is often very different to what's actually happening in terms of the physical performance. And that, for me, in terms of the areas that I've learned the most about and adapted my training for, it's been to try and learn about the physical performance, both in practice and then how does practice correlate to what happens in the match court, which, again, for me, are two completely different things. That is going to segue nicely into what I mentioned before about the Battle of the Brits, where they had this information for me it was always a dream to have like heart rate information on a tv screen watching these athletes be it a racing driver or be it a tennis player where you can see you know you can see their tens the heart rates going through the roof but what did you learn from the data in battle of the brits and watching this live 
Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it just learned, it taught me that how how data can tell a story and it can tell a different story about a match potentially for the viewers. Really, uh, you know, obviously for me as a sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach, you know, it's it's great for me. But like you say, for viewers to see a player's heart rate, for viewers to see a player's max speed, for viewers to see the number of high-intensity accelerations and decelerations, but you'd call it high-intensity tennis movements, whatever it is, of one player versus another and contrasting styles. I just think it just adds that next layer of detail. And I really feel like as a sport, you know, we've got to engage more with fans and young fans like data. They, you know, they're into all of these things. And I just feel like we can be less protective over our data because in reality, you know, one of the experiences I had when we were first talking to the players about using it in the Battle of the Brits, and obviously we were lucky that Andy and Jamie were very keen to have it. So they're obviously going to influence the group a lot, but there was... You know, there'd be a few players in the draw that weren't particularly comfortable, you you know, having their, their data on display. And I understand that. But actually, it, it doesn't have any bearing. Like for, for, for other teams and for the viewers to know your physical data doesn't actually have any bearing on the outcome of the match anyway. You know, it's not like a team is going to say, OK, yeah, this guy can be a bit slow, you know, so, so do this, this and this. Yeah. Because actually... Matches just don't work out like that. There's so many other skill aspects to it and psychological aspects to it that I feel like as a sport, we need to be a bit less protective over that data. But then also to be fair to the players, it is their data. So they ought to be remunerated for sharing that data as well. And I I think that's only fair. And I think finding a way of doing that would be the best way forward for that to become something that we see as a norm. Because I think it's fantastic in yeah. terms of marketing our sport to see the best athletes, how their bodies are responding. You know, we had players that would be playing their best, moving unbelievably well with such low heart rates and others that are doing exactly the same thing yeah. with such massively high heart rates that, again, we would all relate to and think, wow, he's doing that 180 beats a minute and look at the control he's still playing with. You know, I'm on a treadmill and I can barely stand up when I'm 180 beats a minute. You know, how do these guys do it? You know, so I just think there's there's a hundred stories you can tell with this data that I just think it's um, it's crazy for us as a sport not to be embracing that. And did you find it strange that some players, you know, they're all playing at the same level, but their heart rates are different. And does that come true in their personality? Let's say you're a more uptight person, they have higher heart rates and the more chilled person has lower. Is that the way it pans out or it can be totally different? Uh, I think efficient efficient players who, um, who kind of, let's say, stroke the ball a little bit more have lower heart rates, whereas the guys who put a lot of grunt into the ball have, slight, have yeah. higher heart rates. The metabolic demand is higher. That's what I noticed. The situational elements of how good players build pressure on people, and you see that what you see what good players are doing to their opponents by by making their heart rate go higher and higher and higher, and lo and behold, their opponent has their highest heart rate and they get broken, or they hold serve very easily when someone when they're making their opponent have a very high heart rate and put a lot of high efforts in how players manage their energy throughout the course of a match. You know, you've got some players who will be playing against a player who's much better than them. Mm. So their physical effort at the very start of the match, we'd be seeing some huge stats in terms of their player load per game and their heart rate in the, at the very start of the match 
they try their best, didn't quite get in their own way, and then the better player just won, just goes, yeah. you know. And I know there's more to it tactically but, than that, but you see that in the data. And you think if they could maintain that, like they could keep up close to it. And what, can they train that so, or does it still become the body just won't allow them to train that? Like, could you say that player is lazy? Yeah, this is a thing. I think this is where it's so fantastic. It links so beautifully to their practice to say, these were your stats when you were really maxing out and you were going toe-to-toe with a really good player. But your threshold for that was only three games worth, you know. So why can't we get stronger and fitter and make that threshold 10 games worth? Then all of a sudden you're five all in the first set and and you're right in a dogfight then, you know, and anything can happen. You're putting yourself in the mix. I know that there's tactical elements to that, psychological, technical elements to it. But the one element we can really control is the physical element. Let's get that output, you know, hour after hour on the court, working at that level of intensity with those amounts of high, high intensity, X cells, B cells, player load per minute, however you present it to that player to tell them what high intensity really looks like. Because for me, a lot of players practice a lot and they train hard because they train for a long time. Mm. But actually having an understanding of that intensity, that match level intensity, for me, that's how players need to work harder, uh, not to be grinding out long sessions. Of course, players need to do long sessions. I'm not arguing against long sessions. But, you know, it's knowing the details of what that intensity looks like and replicating that on the practice court, um, for me, is a, is, a, is a big jump that we can do objectively now with data. We can show coaches that and players that. And so, so you can definitely, you can figure out the drills to get them in those heart rate zones or those intensity zones. Tell me, I'd love to be able to get their cortisol levels. Yeah. That would be, just understand the stress that they're under. Maybe you don't need that to understand the score should say their stress but it would be interesting to see like heart rate data on let's say Federer who missed who had the match point against Djokovic missed the backhand and just what happened before and after that and what happens when a player loses a big opportunity and then goes flat and how sometimes you just can't get the energy back is that the case yeah that that that's that beautiful thing that physical that physical psychological crossover you know, and I, just, I don't think we're that far away from knowing almost all of these things, you know, in terms of how these how these things link. I don't think we're that far away. You know, people, players can wear patches that can give us all sorts of physical data now. Um, so, yeah, look, I think we're getting closer and closer to giving players objective answers about these things rather than just the classic old comments of, oh, you know, the, the, the players' legs went, you know, they ran out of steam in the third or, they're not fit enough, you know, yeah. they need to do X, Y, and Z, you know, you know, they ran out of puff. All of these kind of just, uh, they're not in necessarily inaccurate comments, but they're not backed up by any substance other than opinion. And, and I think that we can be objective about almost everything now. So why, why aren't we chasing that? And that's, that's for me a question I kind of ask ourselves as an industry really, is that when I look at a lot of teams and how they set up, you know, why aren't they trying to find out the answers to these questions, you know, and finding out the objective data around their players' performances? Because I don't see very many players and teams doing it. I really don't. 
That's that's really strange. Like change is such a big thing, and getting your mind ready to go down this other route of data, ones and zeros, and being able to understand it is so hard. So obviously, we need somebody on the team like you, who's big in, who's going to push it. But how hard is it to say to teams coach? I'm not sure. We don't. I don't know if team tracks anything. Say, look, we need to start tracking this. You're in there. This has to be done. He's like, no, this is be crap. We don't need to do this. So. How how would you deal with, no matter who you're working with, to get that change over the line? Depending on who you're working with, probably slowly, little drip feeding, little bits in. And for me, number one is keeping the conversation as simple as possible. And that's not to say that tennis coaches aren't capable of understanding com- complicated stuff. But if you go in with the complicated stuff at first, you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But just to say to a coach, you know, do you want to know uh, how hard the player is working today versus tomorrow in actual fact? Do you want to know how hard the tennis session is compared to the match situation? Mm. You know, is that something that would be interesting to you? And just using one metric of those things and just presenting one number to those coaches and, and just having that discussion. Today was 100 player load. Tomorrow we want to have a really tough day. We're going to go... 300 player, which is the equivalent of two sets of elite men's tennis. You know, to just put it into their terms, their language, and keep it really simple is how I would go about doing that. Um, I would make sure my equipment works <laughs> before I do it. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, that's something I would definitely do. And I would try and keep the cost to the player or to the team as low as possible, which is a problem. For entry-level people, that they they can't afford it. But there are ways of doing this. There are governing bodies that will lend the kit out. There are universities that would happily, you know, lend kit out to get some interesting data. You know, there's ways of doing it. But of course, as an industry, we've got to want to do it and be interested in these things. And I also know that there's a large part of the fraternity that would argue that the data isn't 100% accurate because of the finite movements we have in tennis, which I would... I would agree with, you know, that it's not, you don't always get absolute gold standard accurate data. But for me, most of us are working with, well, no, tennis is an individual sport. You're dealing with an N of one. Even if you're dealing with a squad of players, they are all individuals within that squad. So actually, so long as you're comparing player A on Monday with player A on Tuesday, even if there is some inaccuracies in that data, you are still getting something useful to turn around to a coach and say, Today was harder than yesterday. And actually, it was one and a half times harder than yesterday. Today, you actually made the player run nine sets worth of tennis in your four-hour practice today. You know, is that something that we want to do tomorrow? Or is that something where we think we need a light day tomorrow based on that data from the match that we got and the practice session that we got? And how do you actually measure load? Like I remember, I, I don't, I'm sure he definitely did train with you guys one day. Conan Ireland trained with Andy a few times. And I think he used to wake up and go, you know, today he just used to have his own, I feel like a six today. I'm not training. He just knew himself how he felt, which is a really hard thing to, to say, like, I'm not going to train today. But there's, so there's two questions here. One is, how do you actually measure load and how somebody's feeling on the morning? And two, how do you convince somebody like Andy, say, Andy, you're not playing today. We just, it's not worth it. Like, does he listen to you or it's a fight? I think if you've got data to back up the argument, 
it's a much easier conversation to have rather than just subjective. Of course, how players are feeling is a really important and valid part of that process. Um, not all players are great or particularly accurate at giving um, RPEs or well-being scores. You know, it can be a bit hit and miss. I know there's studies that back that stuff up really well. They, the players do do it well, and it's valid data. I'm sure it is. But for me to get numbers, and I use player load most of the time, which is the external loading number you get from Catapult, but I'm sure every device has their version of it. Um, to have a, a number that gives objective data around the amount of impact that that body has gone through, for me, is the most important piece of information, really. Because it's a simple one to give to coaches and players, very simple uh, piece of information. Um, and and we can, we can track it very easily. Um, and we can ask players about how they're feeling based on the player load that they've been through in a particular week or in a particular session. Now, player load doesn't necessarily indicate intensity, so, you know, 300 player load of sprinting versus 300 player load of hitting up and down the middle is completely different. Yeah. So you have got to have some kind of intensity measure alongside okay. a player load, whether that's meters in high, high speed zones is something you could look at. For me, numbers of high intensity changes of direction is interesting. So any change of direction that's over around three and a half to four meters per second I would consider a high intensity change of direction and that's where we then know, okay, that's something that would be pretty high impact on the joints and the muscles of the body to change direction, anything over three and a half, four meters a second. Okay. How many of those did you have today yeah. uh, versus your match? You know, then you're starting to get into intensity a little bit. And have you, can you sort of say, okay, Andy's doing this today. He's going to be this tomorrow. Have, have you done enough of it that you know you can sort of tell tomorrow how he's going to feel or it's still hard to gauge? Yeah, it's hard to gauge. And this is where the other balance has to come in. And this is where coaches start to back off a little bit. Is if, if the data starts to dictate what you're doing, then people start to get a little bit, well, what's the, what a machine's telling me that I can't train today. Is, is invariably the comment you will hear within the first few weeks of going down that route. Oh, what does the machine say we can do today? And I understand that because it takes away the feel, the player and the coach. So for me, it's using this technology sparingly to learn something, then putting it away for a few weeks okay. once you've learned that lesson, then bringing it back out at another appropriate moment, the next training block or whatever it is that you're doing, to say, okay, can we revisit this and learn something new from it? Or has anything changed since we last used it? Then use it for a few days, put it away again. I mean, in Andy's rehab, you know, when it, with a metal hit, the amount of impact that body's going through is, a, is really important. So we did use it a lot for Andy's rehab for the, uh, the hip resurfacing because, you know, impact loading was really important to, to be very sensitive around that. Um, so we did use it for a long time there, but that's the longest we have used it for, and I wouldn't use it extensively now. I just drop it in where where I can feel that it's appropriate, and having that feel is uh, is something that's all important for for the coaching team around a player. Do you wish you had it back when Andy was 19 to compare now, to give out to him, get the whip out, Andy, come on, you still have it. 
I yeah, I mean, look, I think that this loading data and where it's going, I think it would have been great to have this information decades ago mm. because rugby and football have had it for decades. Um, you know, so there's no reason why we couldn't have had it for decades. And I still think, in my humble opinion, we are way behind the curve in learning the lessons of of, uh, of getting objective data around training sessions because it's my opinion that training philosophies have been handed down from generation to generation. Many of many good things about those training philosophies, of course, but the game has changed since many of those philosophies were created. And so I feel like we need to get a modern twist on some of those training philosophies that now applies to an 85 kilo male with 10% body fat and rippling muscles who bombs around a tennis court <laughs> at eight meters a second, jams on the brakes with 10 times his body weight going through his hip and knee joint to then hit the accelerator but, you know, pedal and go seven and a half meters a second back in the other direction for five hours. That's a different animal to the one we were dealing with 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And, and so I believe that training on court and off court training philosophy needs to have a modern twist and be tweaked to reflect the demands of the modern athlete in tennis. Yeah, I completely agree. It's changed over the years. They were fit before, but they're a different beast. And it's same with all sports, not just tennis. Every, everything's evolved. And Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers, and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. Can Andy wear the GPS monitor during ATP Tour matches? No. Oh, he can't? Okay. The ITF have approved it for use at tournaments, but the individual tournament has to approve it and agree okay. for it to be used. I, I believe that's the current state of play. Now, the ATP, I think the WTA have, but I can't speak for them, but the ATP have been keen to start to okay. integrate some of these things so at the next gen finals last year they offered the players to wear the devices during matches and be giving data to the players after the matches around their performances um, but I, the, not many of the players took it up okay. of the players okay. that were there only a few did you're like what? Um, so so again there's you know look i understand it, it you know you're wearing this kind of vest with a, a unit in the back of it. If you haven't worn it a lot before in practice and you're going into a tournament where there's decent prize money and pride and ranking points and all those things, I understand why you wouldn't just blindly accept that as a situation. But for me, getting it out to players at this time of year, actually, on the practice court and understanding and learning the demands of practice, for me, even that is just an absolute quantum leap in the right direction and it doesn't have to be catapult like i said you know it could be any device any unit let's just get people getting objective data around their practice sessions because it, we don't have that as a culture in the sport and we could learn so much and then put it down once we've learned that lesson 
It's yeah, putting it away. That's the the stuff I didn't know. You actually put it away for a while and then come back to it. But I remember playing Fiverside not so long ago, and I what well, I looked into getting a kid for the lads. Like I was like, he doesn't work and he doesn't work. I'm going to prove it now because these have their fault. One one words I watch is Apple Watch. And I was like, that doesn't track it properly. It doesn't track. You know, it's a Fiverside pitch. It's small. There's no way it's tracking it right. And it wasn't. It, he was saying I ran twelve kilometers. You didn't run twelve kilometers, but. I remember looking into it and they didn't track, like they were really bad at the sharp distances and had to be outdoors and all sorts. But I'm going to just move on from there. I want to ask you one question I get all the time on functional tennis is anytime I put up a video of the pros or top junior sliding on hard courts, like, there's two sides. One is like their knees are going to fall off. And two, it's like, how do they do that? Maybe you can explain the forces that a player has to go, that pushes to go slide on a hard court. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, I guess everyone has their opinion on it. I mean, for me, the reason why they're sliding is they're coming in at such a steep shin angle when they're changing that direction. So, so if that shin angle is too, is too shallow, let's say, steep, probably the wrong word, too shallow, then they aren't going to get the traction on the court that they need. And, and in my opinion, of course, there's lots of great players that do it. So I'm not criticizing them personally, but. If you're sliding on a hard court, you're wasting time in changing direction, in my view. Precious little time that you've got, especially yeah. on a hard court. And so, you know, I obviously from a joint health perspective as well, and the ankle, you know, there, there are clear risks with doing yeah. it anyway. But for me, aside from any of that, you're wasting time while you're sliding. So why would you do that when actually if you can plant decelerate and re-accelerate in the other direction you will be able to do that quicker than someone who slides and so for me that's why i would personally discourage it it's more from a performance perspective of you're wasting time out there rather than necessarily a risk or health perspective because most of them who do it do it incredibly well sure. and it is it's an impressive thing to see even though i'm like wincing like oh my god you know yeah, yeah i'm wincing a bit when they do it but you know regardless for me, it's more of a performance look. You know, that half second you're spending sliding, you could have planted and re-accelerated in the other direction and be on to the next shot to hit the ball that you want to hit rather than the ball that you have to hit because you're out of position, if that makes sense. It does. You probably have the data set to back it up as well. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. See, there you go. So listen... Listen to Matt, everybody. Move on to resurfacing. Obviously, I think a lot of tennis people have seen it. It was such a great documentary. Uh, it brought a tear to a lot of people's eyes. How tough was that period for you and the team? And did you have belief at all times that you probably have to say you did, that Andy was going to come make a comeback? Or was there times where you're like, I don't know? I think most of the time we didn't know. You know, you, it's just with 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 the injuries the way they are and they're so unpredictable in so many ways and you think you're making progress one day and then come in the next day and it's got sore again or whatever it is or the you know the degree of extra movement that you fought so hard to get the day before is now no longer there in fact it's worse the next day um, and one of the hardest things I think as a support staff member never mind as Andy the athlete he'll have to well, he does explain in the video and the, the movie how he, you know, the, the emotions he's going through. But as a support team member, to be living with this kind of cloud of an injury, you know, everyone's been through it with players for a month or two, yeah. you know, and it's tough and the player's frustrated. But when it, 
when it goes into years, you know, and, and you know, we started making the documentary, you know, no one had any idea the journey we were going to be going on for the next couple of years. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to look back at it actually as a support staff member and actually to go and watch the premiere with my wife and show my family what it is that I've been talking about and kind of coming home, you know, so depressed yeah. about for the last few years to say, you know, how's Andy's hip today? Well, I'm not so good today. You know, when you have that conversation for two years, yeah. people are like, yeah, what's, what's the deal with this? When you actually visualize it and see it in images on the screen, actually, I think is a really interesting process for me and for those around me speaking selfishly. Mm. But then I think Andy also said publicly he didn't realize the impact it was having on the team as well as himself. He's in this bubble of his own, rightly so, kind of trying to figure out every day what's going on. But then for him to look back and see how it was impacting us as a team, you know, uh, yeah, just, just an incredible journey, really. And in many ways, we're still on it as well, to be honest. You know, it's um, one minute this thing's good, the next minute it's not. So it's, it's still a journey that we're all living it's almost great to have that to look back on as a process. And when, you know, when he won the tournament in Antwerp this time last year, you know, that was beyond any of our wildest yeah. dreams. You know, we were wondering if he was ever going to win matches again, never mind tournaments. That was a crazy, you know, beating Stan in the final in three pretty brutal sets. We just, we just couldn't believe it. You know, amazing, amazing really. Yeah, no, it was incredible. No, just to see, we all know how hard it is to do those exercises that the physio tell you to do slow rotator exercise or glute and you do them once twice a day or once a day for two three weeks then you forget about them but he was showing up every day doing loads of these little exercises it's so it's just it's so tough like so it just, what a strong character to be able to push through and the belief that you guys all gave him is incredible now he still does i mean literally the last few days at the national tennis center you know andy's in the gym just churning out rep after rep after rep of these exercises still wow. and you can see the other players and the other s&c coaches looking at him out of the corner of their eye just going like this guy's work ethic is like i mean every player works hard yeah pretty much you know everyone knows they've got to work hard but this guy i'm sorry he just takes it to a completely different level his work ethic he churns out sessions like nobody I've ever seen. I've never seen anybody do it. I mean, obviously, I've been with him a long time. I'm biased. Yeah. But no one churns out strength and conditioning sessions and tennis sessions like Andy Murray. They just don't. Then what do you mean by that? By how much errors he can put in the court or by the, the intensity of each intense after intense? Is that what you mean? All of it. The attention to detail on the technique of the exercise mm. But not just one rep, every rep, you know, hundreds, thousands of reps. He's on it every single rep. And I know that sounds like a cliche or I'm exaggerating. I'm really not. Anybody could walk in the gym at any time and watch him train ever. Mm. And he is on it every single rep that he's executing wow. with attention to detail, asking questions about why you know, and, and what is it working, the purpose, and then so into each rep, honestly. And it's the same on the court when he's drilling and trying to figure out, you know, solutions to issues that are on the court as well. You know, 
it's yeah I'll be amazed if I see it again in my lifetime it's what made him the world's best like tell me quickly let's go back to Andy's great year Olympics Wimbledon what was that like to be part of that team during that unbeatable phase that was a heck of a year absolute roller coaster year I mean I think he was like I think he was 8,000 points behind Novak at one stage um, after Indian Wells, Miami. And and just a few things clicked, you know, and a few things kind of dropped in the right place. Something flipped in his mind to just really go for it, start pushing. And he built momentum and more and more and more momentum. And just went, I think he went on two just amazing unbeaten runs. I think he hit his two longest winning streaks in the same year. And it, yeah, in between that, we had a bit of a training block as well that he pushed really hard in, which which I think actually saw him through the back end of the year, the physical work he put in, even in that summer, in the midst of a of a long unbeaten run, um, just crazy. Again, that work ethic, just crazy. Um, and then even right to the very wire at the at the Masters finals that year, he had a brutal semi, I think, against. Uh, Ranich, which was just a crazy long match. I think he maybe played Nishikori that week Nishikori. as well in one of the longest matches. I think there. so. Nishikori rings a, rings a bell. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I could be wrong with that, but just off the charts and then has to play Novak in the final. We're like, oh my God, as if you didn't need another more brutal match to play Novak in the final to finish year end world number one. And, um, and so obviously the nerves around that match were just huge. Yeah. Uh, but he actually went out and it was a fairly straightforward match compared to the matches he'd had that week. And I remember going back into the locker room afterwards and Ivan, first thing he said was, yeah, this is good, but we need to get better. We oh, need to wow. be better next year and he needs to be better and this is how it needs to happen. Wow. And that, for me, that impacted me so much in terms of the mindset of, of, a, of, of an absolute God of our sport, you know, legend of the sport, a real natural born winner, which Andy is as well, but Ivan clearly is, you know, a, a leader in that. But for that to be his mindset in the locker room after all of that, after everything that had happened that year, I just, that blew me away. I, you know, I couldn't believe it and, and was so impressed, really. Did you, did I hear you quote say something about Ivan on the brutality of winning? He's just a machine. Could you just briefly explain what you meant by that and what what his attitude is like towards winning? Yeah, it's it's something that only someone like Ivan Lendl could have, really. Um, you know, he'd be saying to Andy before matches, I think, don't quote me, but you know, enjoy kind of torturing your opponent today. You know, make him really suffer out there. You know, enjoy this one. You know, now if I turned around to Andy and said that, he'd be kind of like, well, what do you know about it? You know, not in a disrespectful way, but kind of thanks, but okay. But for some, for someone like Ivan, with his record, with what he's done, and who he is as a person, to say that to someone before a... I don't know, a first round match in a slam where the nerves are jangling a bit and kind of to have someone like him say something like that is just so impactful. You know, it, for me, even just as a, you know, as a team member, just listening to that, you kind of, even my nerves go out the window yeah. a little bit. It's kind of like, yeah, he's right. Yeah, he should be like that. That's how it should be today. 
but like I say, only someone with with his credentials, I think, can really get away with 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 speaking in that way. Very unique. Maybe like top guys like Andy and Roger and well, and no, Novak doesn't. But uh, uh, sorry, Djokovic have these other greats around them that can say this is how it's done, and they can't backfire because normally it's the it's the player who calls the shots, isn't it? And it's good having somebody who's been there and done it and it's crazy. Yeah, really amazing story. Yeah, it's interesting. The super coach phenomenon really that kind of that kind of exploded really a few years ago. You know, we had so many legends of the game in the locker room, which for me, you know, again, I grew up watching all these guys, cliche, but I did, you know, just being in the same locker room as them, yeah. just like, wow, you know, you are, I'm not going to tell you, but you are my absolute hero. Great for everyone to be around anyway, but also just what those people brought in terms of the gravitas of their message. I think it was less, if I can say this, it was less probably about making technical changes to their players, but just having that person in the box when you turn around and you need a bit of inspiration or you're in a tough moment, to see that person sat there, I, I think I'm assuming and hypothesizing that the impact of that is just, you know, money can't buy that really. And um, and so I think that's what they brought. I think mentorship as much as anything really for the players that they worked with rather than, yeah, changing the grip on the yeah. forehand or something like that, you know? Well, was it ever, do you ever feel it was like, okay, Lendl v. Becker at the top of it all, they have their own battles going on as well. Like, I can't lose the coach Becker over there. Or, was there a feeling of that at all? I reckon there was. It wasn't spoken about. And a lot of them, when you hear them speaking to each other, their old rivalries, <laughs> you know, start to fire up even in the locker room, not about each other's players, but just... You know, let's go out and play a you know, let's go out and play a tiebreak against each other. I'll still take you, you know. Because I, I think that's probably the culture in their era, you know, in the locker room was kind of having that chat, which you don't get loads of, I don't think, in the modern day locker room. Players are in their team, they're focused, they're kind of zoned in. There's less of that kind of chat around the locker room. I think in their day it was kind of like, you know, I'm gonna take you out today. No, you're not, you know, and I think it's great to see that again, to be oh, a yeah. witness to that. Even just a tiny little slither of it, you know, what a privilege to, to just be witnessing that. I'd love to see somebody like Andy or Novak coming up to one of the juniors and saying, you're going down today. And just to see, like, I know they talk about respect. It would be so funny to see the junior would probably crumble. The young lad would be like, oh, God. Was there ever, did you enjoy a drink after the wins, a pint of Guinness or a beer? Or It's one of those things, actually, that I think is a bit of a regret in some ways that actually, especially with tournament wins, you know, the tournament's done and then you're packing up and you're on to the next one. You know, you're, you're straight back to the hotel. Very often there, there's a flight booked for that evening. You're straight back to the hotel, your bags are packed and you're off to the next event without really taking a moment to celebrate. You know, obviously Andy's biggest wins we've been lucky enough to be around for and been celebrating with, but so many tournaments that he's won, we've just been, you know, great, awesome. Okay, we better, we, you know, better taxi's better. leaving in half an hour, you've got to get your bag packed kind yeah. of thing. And that's, it's a bit of a shame, actually. I've seen that happen so many times in tennis that actually if, if I personally could go back and live the journey again, I would have 
taken more time with the player to to make sure we all had a good team. And who knows? You never know when the next one's going to come around again, do you? True. No, you don't. You don't. Uh, just a couple more questions for you. I just I'm I'm looking through my list here, which I haven't looked really at all. We've sort of bypassed the whole list here, but. What would you tell a younger Matt, apart from, uh, which you've sort of answered that, apart from celebrate the wins more, is there any other advice you give to you that could apply to somebody else who would have been in your shoes as a 25-year-old? As a yeah, I mean, for me, the connection with the player is paramount. And I know people would have heard that before and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. For me, the soft skills of, of the job are as important, if not a little bit more important, I believe, than the hard skills of the job uh, in terms of how to be around a player in different situations, how to behave when they've lost, how to behave when they've won, how to behave when they're trying their best, how to behave when they're not trying their best, how to behave when they're under pressure, when they're upset, when they've had an argument with a family member, how to deal with all of the intricacies of coaching relationship, all of those things um, I think were more important than the sets and reps we prescribe. And we'll be doing hex bar deadlift versus Olympic bar deadlift. You know, that stuff really, in my opinion, is pretty superfluous to have you connected with the player and how do you behave consistently in situations and yeah that's what keeps the relationship alive for the length of time you've worked that says a lot right there the amount of time you've worked with Andy but just in case I'm around Andy after he loses what should I say or not say well the feel in that situation is so important and very often actually saying nothing is the best thing but showing up and physically being there is the most important thing. So not to hide. Don't go and hide and pack your bag somewhere else in the locker room. Physically be there. Even if you feel like they don't even want you there, show up. Yeah. Physically be there. Because um, I remember back in um, Cincinnati, which is shown in the – no, was it, no, it's Washington, excuse me, when Andy was – broke down on the court. He was crying on the court after the match. He beats uh, Marius Coppill in a long match, finished about two in the morning. No one really in the stadium, a couple of fans stuck around. And he, again, part of this long rehab process, we thought we'd cracked it and he was still in pain on the court. And he was just bawling on the court. And I think people will know that, that, that situation. My feeling of course it was nothing to, you know, it was not about me but me as a support staff member but more importantly someone who's been with him so long yeah. I wanted to be the first person he saw when he got back to the locker room um, and when he sat down I made sure I sat right next to him so my shoulder was physically touching his shoulder and I did not I didn't say a single word um, and we were there for a good long while Obviously, the rest of the team was there as well, but didn't say a word. And so sometimes saying nothing is far better than filling the air with useless words, you know, because um, it's probably going to be more irritating than anything, but actually nothing to say at that point anyway. 
But the most important thing is for them to know that you're physically present. And that's it. That's, yeah, good, good, good advice. That's really good advice. What, what would you tell a top 15-year-old and 16-year-old to work on from a fitness point of view? What's really important do you see now? I think strength and stability is far more important than cardiovascular conditioning. I think having stable joints that can deal with the rigors of competition for longevity and having strong enough muscles that can produce and absorb force over periods of time is far more important than lungs. Because most players are playing three set matches their entire lives anyway. So they are used to the demands of three sets. Of course, you're jumping up levels and you need to be fitter for the levels you're jumping up. So I'm not saying never train cardiovascular, Mm. of course not. But to me, strength, stability, and of course, their ability to move with good patterning on the tennis court. So tennis-specific movement patterning, which I learned a lot from Jez Green on, um, for me, is paramount. And at what age should a player really start working on their strength? Definitely from 12, but I think they can be working on it from younger, but just not in such a dry, formalized way of doing strength and conditioning exercises, but gymnastic-based exercises particularly, I think is just awesome. I've got an eight-year-old myself, and I watch him do gymnastics, and every exercise he does in gymnastics, I'm like, Yes, that's brilliant for you. <laughs> the next one, yes, that's brilliant for you. You know, so just doing it in that way, in a less formal way, below the age of 12. But I think, yeah, 10, 11, 12, you should really be starting to look at stability and strengthening gross motor patterns, but stabilizing joints as well. And, and knowing that all the way through that journey as they grow, that stability will change and will be impacted because of growth. So even more important to keep working on those things as you go through that that growth. I think I feel like cardiovascular conditioning is something that coaches chase a lot because they want players to be fit. I think it's easy to get a tennis player fit, and most tennis sessions get players that the, 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 the physiological demand of their tennis practice is plenty enough actually to get them fit enough for the vast majority of what they're going to experience on the match court. Okay, they might need to top up with a little bit of high-end heart rate stuff, but the vast majority have built a big enough base on the practice court if they train well enough in practice that that spending time, quality time, getting stronger and more stable, in my view, is time well spent. Great. And does Andy... Uh, Betty doesn't do 10 by 400s anymore, does he? No more 10 by 400s. No, so we try and tick a lot of that cardiovascular conditioning on the court by manipulating the variables of the practice um, in terms of the drills, how the length of the drills with the heart rate monitor on so that we are ticking that box. And then, yes, doing top-up stuff off the court for sure as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, no no more four hundreds. Although I, I I mean, even though they're brutal, I loved them. I loved them. Everybody, I remember first hearing what Andy did them. Everybody had to go do them. Like they're like, 
I can do them in 65 seconds, which is, is was it 65 seconds, was it? I mean, yeah, was you hard. wouldn't be repping 65, but yeah, pretty close. It's tough going. Anybody, somebody go give it a go. It is not easy. Like, it, it's not. It's a very honest session. You find out all about how fit you are in that session, and you find out how fit you're getting by repeating that session. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's tough, but you know what? I think it's great meat and two veg for tennis players. Yeah, it's good. I remember you, you you briefly spoke, sorry, about gymnastics. And I've seen, I remember I used to play tennis with a guy and he's into his gymnastics and karate, never lifted a weight in his life. This as a kid, like, but I remember like we're 14, 15 and he was lifting weights and this guy could lift prop, never touched the weight and he started lifting and he was destroying us because the natural strength you get from gymnastics and karate is just amazing. I, I, from what, reading and listening to people, I'd really encourage kids to do it because it will stand to them over their youth and moving on. Yeah, honestly, it's it's gold, I think, for, for kids, that kind of gym, the gymnastic movements, mobility, fun, strength, power, explosive speed. They work, you know, so many great things that cross over. And same, like I say, same in martial arts as well. And there would be other things, you know, obviously the kids just having a massive exposure to different sports. One of the first questions I always ask juniors I start working with is what other sports are you doing in your week? Where in your week is the other sports? Because if they aren't, can't one of your fitness sessions go do another sport? Now, not that that's, you know, every S&C coach who teaches tennis players will be like, no, don't get rid of my S&C sessions. But of course there needs to be that balance. But but by goodness, they need to be doing other sports in their program because uh, cut that out of your peril. That's good to hear. And I'm going to, I was actually meant to start with this. I completely forgot about it. I said, I'm not working off notes here, but I was extremely disappointed, Matt, with you when I went to Amazon to buy your book. It, it's not out yet. I didn't know it wasn't out yet. No, no all good things to those who wait. And that's actually what the book's about in a way. Um, yeah, it's called The Way of the Tortoise and um, started out just as some notes. Sounds a bit cheesy, but just some notes that I thought I would write to my son if I wasn't around anymore. Um, and then just gathered some, you know, about my views on my life and how if I've achieved anything in my life, how I've gone about that. And it gathered a bit of momentum and more notes turned into pages. And I kind of thought, okay, maybe there is a bit of a book in this and put it out to some publishers and got some interest. Um, so essentially is is the crux of it is that I speak to a lot of people who want to take the fast track to achieving success. You know, they just graduate or they're starting a new journey or career and they want to achieve working with an Andy Murray within a couple of years, yeah. you know. Um, and some people do get to do that. You know, I call them hares who manage to, you know, kind of fast track to success. And some of them, when they get there, manage to stay there. But the vast majority of the hares kind of fail when they get there because they haven't had so many years of rich experiences building up to that moment so that when they do get their break, they are in a position to, to kind of really take advantage of that situation. Um, so that's kind of the, the premise of the book is to get your values and your mindset right for that longer journey that most of us are going to go on. You know, you get you – get, you know, fast risers in life that, that are just so unbelievably talented at what they do. They they can rise to the top quickly, but for the rest of us mere mortals, it's going to be that long, slow, meandering journey. 
and that's a good thing. Um, so getting your values right and your mindset right, but then also, like I talked about earlier, is getting the soft skills around that journey right as well so that you are feeling your way through those situations, especially as your career or your journey progresses because I think those skills are different for someone who's newly qualified to someone who's middle management level. They're different soft skills apply. And so, yeah, I just wanted to pull all of that out there and um, hopefully people like it when it finally comes out. I'll have one on the way. Is it February or March? Is it? March, I think, next March. year. Okay. Yeah, I was ex- I was like, great, I'm going to get this, get some bit of research done. This is great. Oh, it's not available. No. So you've also updated your website. You're working, with, your players can work with you now. What way does that work? Or tell us more about it. Yeah. So during, I mean, it's an idea I've had for years that I've wanted to just, you know, uh, just start working with some different players at different levels and different ages. And then when lockdown happened, I just hit the ground running. It was like day two of lockdown. I was like, right, let's go for this. Let's get some video footage recorded. Let's get some programs drawn up. Let's start to kind of, let's start to reach out to a wider audience. And so, yeah, the online training program has been going really well. And I've just loved every minute of it. And, and it shows that you can do, if I say so myself, I feel like I can do quality coaching online. Yeah. You know, we've had the tenant, we've had the, the, the player's camera, phone set up on the court and I'm watching how they're moving on the court. I'm speaking to the coach. The coach is feeding balls in between movement drills or we take it into the gym. We do training in the gym. And, you know, I'm training players from Holland, from Northern Ireland, from Scotland, you know, and I'm physically there in the room, you know, and it's great. I just love the pro so much fun. Yeah, no, when I'm running for my my ITF over 50s, I will give you a call to work on the program. But uh, no, so so where can people find out more about you and also check out the website? What's Where are you mainly on social? So yeah, people can find me. I'm probably most active on Twitter. Uh, Matt Little S&C, I think, is my handle on there. Uh, Instagram, I want a bit. Uh, Facebook as well. I've got to train my, my online pages on, on Facebook as well. Uh, and then my website's www.matt-little.online. Uh, but you can chuck it into Google and you'll find all that stuff anyway. And, uh, Great. And I've added your book to our gift list, which will be out this uh, by the time this goes live. So people can get a direct link from our gift list. But yeah, Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, really interesting to hear your side of things and to speak to, to, speak to such a, a legend of the coaching world. So thank you very much for your generous time. That's really kind of you to say. And thanks for having me on. I just, I love having these chats. So um, yeah, hopefully we can do it again soon. What a great guy and chat. I really enjoyed that with Matt. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing Andy get back to some winning ways and being in healthy shape next year. But I'll be back next week at the same time. And until then, take care. Bye.